1: Just a quick bit of housekeeping before I introduce today's special guest. I'm so happy to announce my first book is now in print. The title is Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again. Fixing the root cause of your fatigue with natural treatments. I've discovered 14 root causes of fatigue. I like to call them the fatigue factors. And in this book, I explain eight of the 14. I've had some amazing feedback on how easy it is to read and understand it's not full of technical doctory language like most books written by doctors are and of course the book also includes my own personal fatigue story along with four other stories from real fatigue cases from my private practice it's available in paperback and kindle forms so if you'd like a copy you can find it on amazon or on my website www.drcary.com that's it for our housekeeping so let's get started I'm so very excited about this week's show because my special guest is someone that I greatly admire. His name is Kevin Geary. Let me tell you a little bit about Kevin. Kevin is an integrative health coach, founder of Rebooted Body, and host of the Rebooted Body Podcast. He uses a unique blend of science and psychology to help men and women reprogram their body and mind for sustainable fat loss, vibrant health, and peak performance. He currently has clients in 23 different countries in his signature total body reboot online program. Kevin, thank you so much for being my special guest today on this episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: Kevin, I know that basically like eight out of 10 people, they know what they should be doing when it comes to eating properly, trying to lose weight, exercising. So, I think a lot of people have the right information about healthy eating and how to exercise, but why do they still fail?
2: Yeah, so you know, people—well, people who listen to your show and people who listen to my show have the right information. There's a lot of people in the world who don't have the right information, but we're bringing them around to uh, information that's actually going to work for them. The problem is, is even once somebody has the right information about what to eat and how to exercise. That doesn't mean that they're going to be able to consistently close the gap between uh, what they now intend to do and and what they actually do or what their real behavior is. People run into this obstacle all of the time, right? I get an email from people saying, Kevin, you uh, have cleared up a lot of the myths for me and I think I have a clear plan for what to do. The problem is, I can't get sugar out of my life. I can't get processed foods out of my life. I struggle with getting into a routine with exercise. So they, they have all the myths straightened out. They, they have all the facts they need. But for some reason, they still can't put it into practice. And there's a lot of people who are lost on, you know, what is the reason for that? And that's what I try to do. I try to help people connect the dots. And the reason, I believe, is... Most of success is mastering your inner psychology. There are psychological roadblocks just as there are physiological roadblocks. And most people are willing and able to try to address those physiological roadblocks and make sure they have the information and the facts in order uh, and the support they need as well. But nobody ever addresses the psychological side of things. And a a big picture approach, like if you zoomed to 20,000 feet and you looked at this, I think psychology is about 80% of the process and what you're eating and how you're exercising and all the other stuff, that's about 20% of of the big picture. So the fact that we're leaving out psychology is why most people are failing today, I believe, even when they are given the right information. You
1: know, Kevin, I couldn't agree more. I, I believe just like you do that the majority of it has to do with your mindset and I'm no different than a lot of the people out there. I'll tell you a little bit about my story. I, I did a seminar with uh, Dr. Tom O'Brien, who's like the gluten guru. And in his seminar, you know, he was talking about every, you know everything that's bad about gluten. And of course for me, I'm like, oh, well, that sounds like me and that sounds like me and that sounds like me. And so at the end of that day, I knew I needed to go off of gluten, but it took me about four years to actually get up the nerve to do it. And the biggest thing was it was a psychological hurdle in my head. Right. So can you give us three examples of the psychological, like like how we can address that psychological aspect?
2: Yeah, well, there's... Uh... So it's a really complicated topic, and uh, of course, I'm I'm writing a book called Triggered. It goes over the uh, nine or ten main triggers that people struggle with. Now, some of the triggers are physiological, and some are psychological, so— When you're writing a book called triggered it helps to really make sure people understand you know we can't just cover the psychological things obviously because the facts and the information and the myths all that stuff has to be sorted out as well so you know your stool needs three legs to be able to stand uh and that's one of the things i'm trying to address is that most people will get one or two legs and they'll leave out the psychology leg so i'm gonna help clear that up for them Uh, but to give you an example of like, we could do three of the, the triggers, uh, the one is mindless madness. So that is a, a mindless eating component. A lot of times in society, people aren't aware of how they eat. They're very focused on, okay, what, what do I eat or how much do I eat? But it's really the, how am I eating? What is my relationship with food? That's probably the most important thing. Uh, so this mindlessness that we have as a society or this disconnection with food, uh, is a huge problem. Another one is feeding emotions. So a lot of people know this as emotional eating and we have to try to find out, okay, why do I eat emotionally? Where does that come from? And there could be a lot of reasons that, that we could look at. Uh, another one is pattern paralysis. This is one that I struggled with personally. So when I was a, a kid, after every meal, our family would eat dessert. Every time we were in front of a television or any other type of entertainment, we would be eating, and I've I just grew up in that paradigm from a very young age. So of course, when I became an adult, all of those patterns uh, came right along with me. So it was very tough for uh, years. I would eat dinner trying to be healthy and my mind would just be triggered. Oh, now it's time for dessert, right? Because that is just the the paradigm I grew up in. So a lot of people are falling victim to these patterns. They don't even realize it. And like I said, that's just one of the triggers. But there's three examples for you of some psychological roadblocks that, that get in the way.
1: Now, can you give us some of the physiological triggers?
2: Yeah. So Uh, nutritional poverty is a big one. And this is really popular for people who are into calorie counting uh, or even people who unknowingly cut their calorie intake. Uh, A lot of people just eat too little. Maybe they're following the—the myth of, oh, women need to eat 1,200 calories a day or something like that. And, uh, they just, you know, unknowingly aren't eating enough. And when you're cutting calories, or you're not eating enough, and you're not focused on eating the most nutritious foods that are available to you, You start to starve at the cellular level, right? This is different from hunger where my stomach is empty type of hunger. This is cellular hunger. This is hunger that doesn't go away. And this triggers you to eat and eat and eat. It's like a survival mechanism. Your body is saying, I don't have what I need. You need to go get more food. And this is why calorie counting or chronic calorie reduction of any kind always fails people and usually leads to binge eating. So that is a physiological trigger. Uh, another physiological trigger, this is actually both, so some triggers are physiological and psychological, so there's one I call sugar stressing, and I'm pretty sure everybody is familiar with this, but, uh, there is a—you can have a psychological addiction to sugar, you can have a physiological dependence on sugar. So even if you're not uh, psychologically addicted to sugar, if you are stuck on the you know insulin roller coaster, you're, you're going from sugar spike to sugar spike throughout the day, you can still develop a physiological dependence on sugar, which makes it difficult to get off of sugar. And you'll experience withdrawal symptoms and so on. So uh, that's another physiological trigger. So you'll see that most people are suffering from a combination of these triggers. It's not like, oh, there's just one that I need to deal with. Almost everybody is uh, suffering from a few of them. Some of them play off of each other and make, uh, you know, one trigger might make another trigger worse and uh, it's, it, it can get quite complicated. Kevin, one of the triggers that,
1: that I've seen uh, listed is ego depletion. Can mm-hmm. you explain
2: to our listeners what you mean by that? Yeah. So the ego depletion is a technical term for the way that willpower works. And most people see willpower and they say, all right, I need more of that. And the truth is, and I I want people to know that I have terrible willpower. Most people have terrible willpower. Now, if I've gotten a lot of sleep, and I have a lot of of stress reduction in my life or I've taken a lot of steps to reduce stress triggers and inputs, then I may find that my willpower is heightened and it's doing better than on other days, right? Uh, But willpower is still only a a short-term thing. It's not something you should rely on over the long term. The problem is, if we're trying to eat better and we're trying to exercise and create all these habits and we don't have long-term tools to do that we rely too much on willpower we just try to will our way through it and willpower easily becomes depleted when you do that it just doesn't it's it's not a tool that's available to you at all times especially if you're not sleeping well especially if you're stressed so what happens is when your willpower gets depleted and you're still trying to use it, this restriction mindset of I just have to will my way through it, I just have to eat less, I just have to exercise more, I just have to do it regardless of how I feel, always ends in a binge, always ends in complete out of control behavior. That's what it looks like when willpower uh, fails, when you've tried to use it too much and just psychologically you're gassed and everything gives up and spirals out of control. So. The willpower, while it is a effective short-term tool, if you try to use it long-term, actually becomes a trigger for disordered eating.
1: Now, as you were describing that, that made me think of, from a physiological standpoint, so let, let's give the example of cravings, that a lot of people will have cravings for foods and, and they try and rely on their willpower, just like you said, and sometimes that works, but after a while, it doesn't work anymore. And what I've seen in my practice is that a lot of times when people are having cravings for food, that can either be, from a functional medicine standpoint, a deficiency of dopamine in the brain, and that can create cravings, and it can create intense cravings to the point of like addictions, Mm -hmm. but that cravings can also be a sign of, as you were saying before, nutritional poverty that your body is depleted in some vitamin or mineral or usually a combination of things. And that's, that's your body's way to say, uh, we need more nutrients, so go eat more food.
2: Right. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a big one. And like I said, there it can be either or, or it could be a little bit of both. So I've had people who have run uh, blood testing panels, making sure, ruling out nutritional deficiencies, right? Ruling out some of these other physiological things who still— suffer very much from, uh, basically food addiction or sugar addiction, and we know that this can be a psychological thing just as much as it can be a physiological thing, and it's all about sorting that out, you know, what is it with me personally, and we can't just kind of make blanket recommendations for people, you know, I see these lists of if you're craving X, go eat this, because you might be deficient, and that's okay to test out, but, If it's a psychological thing, that list is completely useless, right? So people have to kind of gauge where they are at uh, personally and make sure that they're addressing their actual needs and not just following blanket advice that's floating around out there.
1: Exactly. It gets really complicated to try and figure out the cause, but I think you're probably like me. We really love trying to figure this out to really help people achieve a whole new level of health and wellness.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So when I created um, the, the my main program, Total Body Reboot, I tried to make sure that it would offer people a chance to come in and do work in a way that they have never experienced before. So it is not, there's no rules in the program. It's There's no meal plans. It is the information people need when they need it. And then on top of that, or I guess you should say the foundation of that is a support system. So they're in constant contact with me. They're in constant contact with other people in the program. They have accountability partners. They, It is built on support. So when they go into this, first, it's not one-size-fits-all. The program is designed as a framework. So I apply this framework to people, and they give me feedback about how they're responding. And we make adjustments based on how they're responding to – personalize it and make sure that they are getting exactly what they need and not trying to it's the program trying to fit them rather than having them try to fit into the program right and then there's this support system on top of it that makes sure that they get everything they need and that we can sort out the psychological things so i tried to create an experience that nobody really has has gone through yet i love
1: that you you have no rules and no meal plan um so so like you said absolutely it's personalized in that there is no one size fits all it doesn't work with t-shirts and it doesn't work with healthcare, and it doesn't work in weight loss and and i love that your program is so personalized
2: yeah and people i have responded really well to it i mean i, I get all the time first when people first sign up uh, there's a little question mark at the bottom of every page that they're on, and they can click that at any time. That's their connection to me. And people would just click it and say, wow, it's amazing. First of all, I haven't done anything yet, but it's amazing to just be able to click a button and have somebody right there for me uh, as a support system. I mean, they can't even get that with a personal trainer. You know, They have to wait until their next appointment. They go in, and then they get a chance to talk to the person for 15 minutes or whatever. Then they have to get their workout in. And there's, There is nothing like this where – they just have a constant connection can ask anything at any time and get support and feedback it's uh it's pretty cool so kevin
1: can you talk to our listeners a little bit about subconscious sabotage because i think that's something that we all do i mean we're all humans it it happens but can you can you give us any tips on on how do we know if we're subconsciously sabotaging and then what what can we even do about that
2: Yeah, so you have to kind of look at your history of attempts to get to where you want as far as your health is concerned and as far as your fitness is concerned. Uh, One of the biggest signs of subconscious sabotage is either defeating yourself before you get started. This is very common, Uh, but a lot of times most people are going to eventually actually get started and start to do some work. It really, really shows up when you are probably in the last 25% of your journey. And if you, have, if you look back over the course of your attempts and you see that, wow, you know, I did really well doing XYZ or I did really well over here in this thing, on this plan. Uh, and it, But it's always in the last 25% things just completely fall apart and something goes wrong, right? Um, it could be even phys- even physical stuff that's hard to deny, like an injury, but this constantly happens over and over again. You have to look at that and see, am, am I sabotaging myself? Are these failures because there's something about me where I am, it's almost like I have an aversion to success. Uh, another one of the, that I struggled with personally, I call regressive rewarding. And I kind of found out that there was this pattern where I would get to the last 20% or so, 15% of the journey. Uh, I had done great work, really good results. And I would just start rewarding myself. I would have these messages go through my head. Like, Kevin, you've done such great work. You deserve to go back to this ice cream. Now you deserve to go back to a uh, pizza, you know, and have a pizza night. And of course that would lead into a pizza night next week and then three days a week, et cetera. And it would be this uncontrollable outcome based on this rewarding behavior. And that is a form of subconscious sabotage that I had to deal with. There's a lot of different types of example of subconscious sabotage. That's one of them. But this is really powerful. So many people suffer from this and they can never really put their their finger on it. It's funny that you say that that it's
1: about, like you said, they're about 25%, uh, uh, close their How did you describe it?
2: 25% left of their, <laughs> of their journey. There.
1: Oh my God. I couldn't get that out. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> 25% left in, in their journey. And, and actually I often see that within my own office that patients are so close to being done, but then they, they just, they just stop doing whatever, you know, right. properly taking their supplements. It's like that book. Three feet from gold, you're so close. You're three feet from hitting the jackpot, but the, but you give up for whatever reason.
2: Right. There is a uh, a study done called the ACE, and I'm I'm doing a lot of work around this right now, and and shedding a lot of light on it with my clients and such. But uh, it's called the ACE Adverse Childhood Experiences uh, study, and this study was born out of a weight loss clinic. Actually, It's being used in a ton of other uh, you know ways right now, but it was born out of a weight loss clinic for obese patients, not just for everybody, but for severely obese people. Uh, Basically, the person running the clinic was miffed at the, the rate of dropouts. When he looked at who was actually dropping out of the program, every single person that dropped out was making significant progress, was making real—nobody was considered, quote-unquote, failing. Everybody was doing really well, yet they were quitting, and he wanted to know why, and he started looking at, uh, basically how their adverse childhood experiences, which is where the name came from, affect their current behavior, and he found out that people were running away when they were successful because of these underlying psychological factors due to— Uh, Adverse childhood experiences, so adverse things uh, like child abuse or living with an addict or, you know, there's a, there's a list of like 10 different ones that are the main ones. Uh, But he found that out of these 10 questions, people were agreeing, these obese patients were agreeing with five or six or seven out of the 10. And if you kind of expand this to the general population, you would see that people who don't have disordered eating habits typically score very, very low, maybe one or two or zero. The more you score, the more that's directly correlated to your disordered eating. And uh, this, this study has actually been expanded now into drug use and other areas of addiction. So very powerful and points to... You know, the psychological aspect being so important here.
1: Absolutely. Now, let's switch gears a little bit and let's talk about the trigger called suspect sleep.
2: Yes. Uh, So this is probably in in the U.S. at least with everybody trying to cram as much productivity into the day as possible. This is probably one that most people are suffering from. Uh, But there's some interesting studies as well that have been done surrounding sleep and cravings. So I'll just give you one of them. Basically—actually, we'll do two of them because they're both really important. The first one is—these both deal with getting less than six hours of sleep per night. Uh, now, people would say, well, that's easy. I get—I get more than six hours of sleep per night, but it's not about the time spent in the bed. It's about the quality of the sleep during those hours. So if you are in bed for eight hours but you're tossing and tossing and turning, you may not be getting six quality hours. So if you are getting less than six quality hours of sleep, first of all, metabolically, after about three days of this, you're functioning like a type 2 diabetic. So when they look at blood glucose response and the ability to clear uh, sugar from the bloodstream and so on and so forth, you are metabolically uh, doing that job about as well as a type 2 diabetic when you are operating on two or three nights of low quality or low quantity sleep. Another study looked at, as far as cravings are concerned, uh, leptin levels, which is your appetite suppressant hormone, down 20%, and your ghrelin levels, your hunger-stimulating hormone, up 30%. So if you're getting poor sleep, You are 20% less full and you're 30% more hungry, yet you have this side plan of controlling cravings. And you can see how that can become a failure and easily become a trigger. So if you're not focused on getting great quality and and high quantity sleep, you you basically can't be successful. You can't be successful being healthy and being fit when you're functioning as a type 2 diabetic, you are 20% less full and 30% more hungry
1: sleep is so important and I talk about that with my patients all the time yes <laughs> and like you said it's not the it's not so much the quantity of sleep it's the quality of sleep
2: yes absolutely getting, getting good deep sleep and and unfortunately you know like many of these things actually a lot of people don't want to hear it they don't want to hear that they they have to invest that amount of time especially when they already have busy schedules when they already have a lot of stress but you know what If you have a lot of stress and you have really busy schedules, the sleep is even more important. So you have to invest that time in yourself.
1: Exactly. Kevin, we could just keep talking on and on and on. (laughs)
2: We're
1: a little bit short on time. So how can our listeners find out more about you and about your program?
2: Everything they need is at rebootedbody.com. So R-E-B-O-O-T-E-D, body.com.
1: So for our listeners out there, I'll make sure that I have that link in the podcast notes. So Kevin, thank you so much for being my special guest today. This was an awesome interview.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: All right, that wraps up this very special episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show with Kevin Geary. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in today. And I'd like to invite you back next week for another episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Keri Drisga, the Functional Medicine Doc, have a great week everyone.
0: You've been listening to the Functional Medicine radio show with your host Dr. Kerry Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc.